Nā mahi whakairo, carving, the sounds, the myriad of tools and their uses to fashion meeting houses, waka, po or other designs. It's what the students learn and absorb at the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute in Rotorua. The work of NZ Mackey is evident at the National Kapahaka Festival Te Matatini. The stage is a carved, collapsible maho or stage front and is 30 metres in length and 13 metres in height. The construction of the maho involved Clive Fugel. He started out as a student and over the years he has built up an impressive knowledge base, learning from his peers, his mentors and students. In this series, Te Tangata Pūkinga, Clive Fugel talks about his childhood, his book Te Toki Me Te Whao, his love of reading and writing notes wherever he goes. For Clive, taking up the chisel began at a young age. Probably the age of about nine, I suppose, I started carving in the woodshed at home. And, um, and then I started from there... Um, I was given a set of tools by my my parents about 1962 and then that's when the carving part started. But I was always good at art at school, um, good at drawing, painting and so on. Uh, art prizes, I'd always get the art prizes, but <laughs> anything else I was dumb as. <laughs> I wasn't very bright. <laughs> yeah, Mathematics, I wasn't very good at that or anything else. But, but Can you uh, remember when you first saw something carved? Probably my earliest recollections would be primary school we used to have back in those social studies and that sort of thing and they used to show these um, slides have Māori artefacts and different things and I think that's probably the inkling of where it was going to go Um, but in the back of my mind you know I'd see these things and the shape and the form of uh, patus and um, like wakahuya and uh, the tokipo tangata and these things and I'd see these things and I'd think oh something fascinated me about them and about the age of probably 10 I suppose uh, we went up north on a uh, camping trip and uh, I remember we uh, camped at Dargaville and um, on Christmas holidays and it rained like anything. They pelted down. And father said, well, he's reading the paper. And he said, oh, there's a private museum in here. Let's go and see this private museum and see what's there. And so we went to have a look. And um, you knew you were getting, there was something there because this guy had, um, there was a small waka parked on the lawn and a waka kiriru, you know, the pigeon troughs and that. Was one of those and bits and pieces, and he said, "Oh, this must be the place." So in we went, and this elderly gentleman. Um, uh, for many years, I didn't know his name, but um, he had um, his house, an old house, but he he'd taken one, uh, made one bedroom, took the wall out, made it bigger, and he had a beautiful museum in there. He had uh, wasn't big, but he had one of everything. He had all the cloaks. He had. Um, uh, uh, Toki stone adds, a big collection of kauri gum, uh, all sorts in there. And he had these cases in the middle of the floor. And there was um, one had uh, mere, two meris in there, uh, heitiki. And he had this patuonewa, it's a, 
um, putty made out of stone, black stone, and um, brought them out of the cabinet, let me hold them, and I held this putty, and that thing just blew me away at that time. I just the shape, the form, and the feel of this weapon, and how it was made, and uh, fascinated me. It's fascinated me for years that. Um, and he was did carving, this old man did carving, and he took me out the back and he said, oh, okay, boy, um, uh, he got a bit of wood, put it in the vise and drew out the patterns and he had all the carving tools there and I remember the um, he had all had, uh, uh, the old filing cabinets, wooden filing cabinets, had them all the way up to the ceiling and he pulled the drawers out and they were full of, the best, the finest English carving chisels. He brought the tools out and he was, did the carving on the wood, showed the different patterns, named them all, and um, I've still got that piece of wood. I kept it all these years. That was part of the inspiration. Later on, um, when I was at high school, because I was still carving at that time at home, didn't know what I was doing, of course, because you're copying out of books and bits and pieces. And at high school... Um, I used to look at the stage area and um, was all beautifully carved and uh, was done by John Taiapa and his assistant that he used to work with, um, Jim Ruru. I'd sit and look at this carving and say, oh, I love that, that's what I want to do. Perhaps it wasn't so much being at the right place at the right time, but more about Clive being around the right people. My neighbour was a carver and we shifted into this new home in Hillcrest Avenue and um, our neighbour Dave Winterburn lived just over the fence and he was a carver and he worked, he was Ngāti Raukawa and he worked out at the buried village carving there and he was talking to my father one day and he said oh, here's this bang bang tap 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 in the shed and he said what's that? and Dad said oh, um, this young fella doing some carving he said oh this i got to see so he hopped over the fence <laughs> went in and had a look and he said oh uh, oh, I think you need a little bit of help, boy. So he said, um, meet me on Saturday morning, 7 o'clock, down, hop over the fence and meet me down at the kitchen in my house there and I'll take you out to the buried village, bring you lunch. So I used to go out with him and I learned a lot from him. Then he said to Dad one day, he said, you know, they're um, calling for um, applications for the Institute. Maybe you should get the young fellow to apply. The year was 1966. It was Clive's final year at high school. His father asked him what his career choice would be. At the time, he had two choices. The first was to head to university to study archaeology and anthropology or head to carving school. So it was going to be either one or the other. And high school, I worked like anything in the last year at high school. Missed out on school certificate by a whisker. But um, didn't matter much because I got a, a letter back from the board at that time saying I was accepted back into the school. Not without a few problems because when I applied for the school, they all looked at me and said, well, you know, you're a parker, you can't come in here. Dad said, well, he knows he's, he's iwi, he knows he's hapu, he knows the rest of it. And... Um, they said, oh, yeah, but he doesn't look Māori. He doesn't, he's not Māori, is he? So uh, Dad said, oh, OK. So we took a, a photograph in. It was a five-generation photograph. It's the oldest child in each generation, and they were all girls. And uh, so in the photo you have my aunt, who's my father's oldest sister. Then you have my grandmother, great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, 
great 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 grandmother and she was full blood full blooded maori she had the moko kawai and dad took this into the board and said well you know he's the proof even john taiapa said well he said it says maori or part maori that's what you you say in your constitution that's what it says How many students were there in that very... So you were part of the very first intake? Yeah, first intake. There were seven of us started. I always thought it was on the 15th of January. It was my birthday, but it wasn't. It was the 16th. It was the day after. <laughs> oh, okay. And um, we started from 1967 to 69. Three stayed on. Three of us, was myself, James Rickard and Jimmy Fergus. Uh, we became known as the senior graduates. And so... In 2013, James Ricard, head tutor at the Carving School, took me on a tour of their workspace. So the shorter the hits, the faster the hits, they're cutting a circle. So each, each chisel and each timber has a different sound when you're carving. Yeah. So they all make different sounds. So um, for Kaida, it's got to do with, um, you know, your, your eyes your hands and your ears in unison. You kind of have to get them all working together. So when these guys go away on holiday and they stop for three weeks, everything just goes out of focus, if you like. And so it takes them about two weeks to get back in the, in the zone. But it's all about listening. So you can hear a sound across the room and know what, what yeah, style yeah, yeah. of... Yeah. And, you know, in some instances you can tell whether... The, the chisel is under stress or oh. something's under stress because they're bashing it too much. Uh, ponamu, you can feel it in the in the blade. What do you mean ponamu? Oh, ponamu adds We've got ponamu adds here. What what does ponamu add that the normal chisel doesn't? Um, well, it doesn't add anything. It just you can't make a mistake with ponamu. You can only take away so much at a time. And you can only use it for so long because it heats up. It's a water stone. So you can only have about... Um, use it for about a minute and you've got to chuck it in water to cool it down because you can start you can feel it coming through the handle it's kind of starts stressing it's like yeah. <laughs> when Hone Taiapa passed away on the 10th of May 1979 Tutu Kaukau who was at that time he was our, the assistant when we started to John he took over the role of the master carver and Tutu was with us for about 16 months and he left to go back to Tauranga to pursue... Um, he was very interested in contemporary Māori art. So. so that left the three senior graduates running the school. And then uh, James and Jimmy got word from their people. Um, of course, uh, James' mother, Eva, Eva Rickard, called her, uh, James back to Raglan, over to that side. To, for some work there that they wanted done. So that left me behind. So um, they asked me if I'd take on the role as the master carver of the school. So I was board appointed in 1983 to that position. Hone Taiapa would be one of Clive's mentors. In fact, he would be instrumental in his carving career. John's brother, Penny, was also a well-known carver. And it seemed that the two of them, together, were a formidable force. It was always said that Pene was the mouthpiece and John was the hands. And when they were together, Pene would do the, the kōrero and John would do the demonstration. But Pene was also a great carver. He was a very good carver as well. Um, and 
they worked on houses all over the country. Um, it said that Pinner worked on at least 105. John probably worked on well in the late 60s, probably 70 all up. With John, every single house was a masterpiece. He was unique in that he could build a meeting house from the concrete foundation right to the last stick of carving, tukutuku, and core whaiwhai and everything in it. He could build it. He knew how to build it on his own virtually. Um, he had the skill to do that. Uh, as a teacher, he was very good. Um, nothing phased him. Until in the later years, he got a wee bit, um, I think his health packed up a little bit. And he got a wee bit grumpy, but oh, well, that was to be expected. But <laughs> um, but he had a, a manner and a way of teaching that he'd say um, he had a, a, a good saying: "There's always a way. If you do a boo boo, there's always a way of fixing it." And he told me one time, he said, "Well, you know, um, the person who who doesn't make a mistake will never learn anything. The guy who makes all the mistakes will learn everything." Pene Taiapa was the first of the brothers to become a carver. That was in 1925. But John's talent with the adze and chisel caught up fast. Both brothers were Ngāti Pro and from a family of 14 kids, from Tamati Taiapa and Maraia Teiritawa. Here, in an archival recording, Pene talks about how he first dabbled with the art form. I didn't teach myself. I was only mucking around with it, playing with the with the chisels and the wood and so on. But my whole background was built on Maori tradition and Maori history. My youth, right up to that particular date, to make it exact, 1915, is a very important year to me. That's the time I interested myself in Maori culture. Not only carving, but also plaiting, weaving, and all of the other uh, aspects of Maori culture. Haka, action songs, and I was in the midst of it. You are considered the finest of Maori carvers. Have you always stuck closely in your carving to the Maori legends? Yes, that is the reason why uh, I am different from others. Uh, mostly, uh, uh, the carver beca- becomes a copyist. And without the background of historical and traditional knowledge, you can't incorporate the desire to produce something a little extra. In 2017, Clive Fugel was honoured for his contribution at Te Puya and for his work, 50 Years Service, at the Carving School. The work of the carvers is not confined to just the school or the region of Rotorua. According to Fugel, it is about careful considerations of carving work at marae, commemorative po or pillars, both here and abroad. We've helped a lot of iwi with houses and uh, also the teaching of students from each iwi. We've contributed immensely to teaching people to carve, for young men to carve, and taking that knowledge back to their own. Some have worked on houses in their own areas and uh, to keep the art alive because we were charged under an Act of Parliament which went through in 1963 to uh, educate, maintain and so on in the art of carving um, and uh, Maori arts and crafts and culture. So uh, I think we've, we've pretty well done that um, and we're still doing that, achieving that. A lot of big projects we've done with the Matatini stages. I know they had to, the carving school, they had to take 
one wall out to get all the timber in there to get it to, to carve it. And that was just the, the bottom, the pipeway of the stage, the bottom part. So that's dismantled and... Yeah, it was all it... dismantled. So it comes apart and it can be assembled and disassembled. But that was one of the big projects that we worked on. We were doing several big projects at the moment. For uh, One was for Gallipoli, for the uh, 100 years centenary of the Battle of Gallipoli. Clive is an avid reader and always carries a notebook around with him. In fact, it was the notes that he's accumulated over the past five decades that helped form the book Te Toki Metefal, the story of Māori carving tools. It's part of my life, I guess. Um, the other track I would have probably have taken was either archaeology, ethnology or um, anthropology. So as my career started at the Institute here, I realised that the study of those tools went with the carving because in early times they had to have used these tools to be, do carving, chisels and so on from stone and bone. So um, that led to the study of Māori tools and tool technology and that's what that book was about. So I started to do, to do that. And because I was good at art at school, I did all the drawings myself in the book. So there's 80-odd drawings in there and I, I drew them myself at home. Uh, all I'd do, I'd draw them up and then my wife would scan them and uh, then we'd email them through, yeah. you know, easy. When did you start the book? When did that become a... Uh, it took about a year to yeah. do, uh, quite easy, because I, I had answers and things at home. Some collection that I started, I started a collection up here years ago and um, people would come in and donate a few of these stone edges to our collection. So we've, we've got quite a good collection here now. So I borrowed some from there and um, got drawings and so on for those. We learnt from John Taiapa how to use an adz, and it's essential when you're doing meeting house work. Um, that big work, the adz is the number one tool. You can use all sorts of modern equipment if you want to, but uh, the adz at the end of the day can remove a lot of wood very quickly. And explain uh, what, what an adz is, please. Uh, adz is similar to an axe, but the the blade is set differently, whereas, um, how would you say, an axe would be um, vertical. Yep. The blade of the adz is horizontal. They were also used for um, gardening tools. Uh, probably well over 70 to 80 percent of um, tools found have been found on garden sites. I know of different instances where farmers have ploughed up fields full of ads blades, largely because there were garden sites there. And a lot of our students want adzes, you see, they're looking around for adzes. So look in your grandfather's tool shed, you'll probably find one. Clive says his work is all about knowledge sharing. He is working on a digital project that will do just that. At the end of the day, um, there's no use having this, all of this stuff stuck away in a box at home, not doing anything. It needs to be used and utilised for the future. Mm, and that's been the problem in the past. A lot of our old people passed away and took all the knowledge with them. Um, I don't want that happening to me. I want to be able to have that knowledge still around for our people to use, particularly our young people can use it in, in the future. So we keep our knowledge and our arts, crafts and culture alive. 
And that's what's kept me here all these years, is that, keeping keeping it alive. John Tyapa said when we first came into the school, you've come in here to learn this art, to pass it on for future generations. And that's never left my brain, and that's why I'm still here. And that's what one of the things that keeps me here is that. Young guys, we have a real, really nice crew. I always carry a little notebook in my pocket because you never know what you learn. You hear things, pull out the notebook, and then it goes. There's little things, and even they come up with little gems now and again. I always say, I always worry about the things I don't know, not the things I know. So um, when they come up with these little gems, I write them in the little book. And I remember our um, esteemed um, historian, late Don Stafford, our family had quite a bit to do with his family and we knew him very well. And he said to me, I said, oh, one day with the little notebook, he said, yes, boy, snap, and he pulled his out. <laughs> he carried one too. <laughs> so there's uh, no ending to learning. Oh, you're learning all the time. That's the beauty of it. You know, the day you stop learning is the day you, well, learning is the, part, the biggest part of it. It's what makes, makes life is learning. You're learning all the time. Uh, I, I think the day I walked in the front door of this establishment was the day I started to learn and never stopped. E mihi atu nei kia koe e Clive Fugel no ngā iwi o Tainui, Ngāti Raukawa, Ngai Terangi me Ngāti Ranginui. Arā he mihi anō tēnei ki tō mahi rangatira o te ao whakairo artist, master carver Clive Fugel. Now the name of his book that he discussed is called Te Toki, which explores his career as an artist and a carver. Now, that interview first featured in 2017 as part of this encore presentation. That's the show for the week. To get in touch, you can, of course, email tiahika at rnz.co.nz, follow RNZ Tiao Māori on Facebook or Twitter, and for all the stories, you can head to the website rnz.co.nz. Join me next Sunday as we begin a new four-part series. I'm with Tikehu Kehu Butler, who shares her story about living with cancer. Nā reira koe ia, tā tātou nei wahanga mō tēnei wā, tēnā tātou katoa. Yeah.
Time and place to suit you. Never thought I'd see the day I lose you. But hey, fake baby. But hey, baby, I still miss when you were my lady. I'm caught lately getting lost, lost in the memory. Yeah. And just drift away. 